Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. And I am your host, Pastor David Whitney. I serve as a senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution. And my two scholars and gentlemen with me on this fine Friday morning, Mike Jeremia, who is, we say, our warrior in the courtroom defending the God-given right to keep and bear arms, and Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor. And we're discussing the federal government that existed before the United States Constitution. A lot of folks don't know that we had a form of government called the Articles of Confederation. In fact, the Articles of Confederation was what uh, uh, took us through the war for independence, successfully through that war, obviously, and, and uh, established the first structures for our federal government. And it's important to understand the Articles of Confederation because they were the point of departure that the Constitution was established from. So they borrowed some things wholesale out of the Articles of Confederation. They modified some other things, as obviously they also created additional structures like the executive branch and the judicial branch and so on. But in understanding the Articles of Confederation, we get a view into our founders thinking about the issues uh, that were resolved by the uh, by the US Constitution and one of those issues is taxation <laughs> everybody's favorite subject you know they say nothing is certain but death and taxes and uh, some would say well uh, you know taxes may be even more certain than death in, in many cases but tonight I mean t this morning we're gonna have a, an interesting discussion about the taxing system that was under the Articles of Confederation and then what happened to that system that what happened to that structure when the Constitution was created. What did they reject from that design of the Articles of Confederation? What did they preserve? And we also ought to discuss the issue of whether we think the tax system we currently have at the federal level, uh, regardless of whether it's following the Constitution or not following the Constitution, whether that system is just and right for the people of these United States. Oh, so a whole lot to discuss here this morning. Phil, why don't you dive in and, and give us your thoughts here on uh, Article 8 of the Articles of Confederation. Although brief, Article 8 may be the key article in the Articles of Confederation. It contained the fundamental defense of state sovereignty, but it also contained the three flaws that ultimately undermined the Articles government. Let's examine the entire article first, and then break it into its component ideas. All charges of war and all other expenses that shall be incurred for the common defense or general welfare and allowed by the United States in Congress assembled shall be defrayed out of a common treasury, which shall be supplied by the several states in proportion to the value of all land within each state, granted or surveyed for any person as such land and the buildings and improvements thereon shall be estimated according to such mode as the United States and Congress assembled, shall from time to time direct and appoint. The taxes for paying that proportion shall be laid and levied by the authority and direction of the legislatures of the several states within the time agreed upon by the United States in Congress assembled. Well, let's look at the fundamental strength to begin with. 
The fundamental strength of the Articles of Confederation is expressed in the idea communicated in that article that the federal government was precluded from directly taxing individual citizens. It was up to the states to determine how funds required for the operation of the federal government were to be raised. The idea was to keep the federal government on, on a short leash, to never allow the federal government to dictate to the states. The concept of a federal government constrained to enumerated powers was strongly implied in the Declaration of Independence, but made explicit in the Articles of Confederation. The idea was carried onto the Constitution of 1787, but in a way that allowed unscrupulous politicians to erode the principle. Alexander Hamilton's expression of the Constitution's implied powers was an early example. But why not centralize power in a federal government? Doesn't that avoid the chaos of every state in a federation doing its own thing? If we were to draw a line through history prior to July 1776, we might be tempted to assume that there was no other way. Governments operated from the top down, with governing elites determining, at best, what was good for the governed, and at worst, what was best for the governing elites. And an objective analysis of recorded human history would clearly show that the governing elites, more often than not, helped themselves from the government troughs before ever giving any attention to the fuzzy concept of the general welfare. We should reflect here on why the War of Independence from Great Britain occurred. The Declaration of Independence provides a formal list of grievances with the British sovereign. Unfortunately, our school systems attempt to condense those reasons into bumper sticker wisdom, taxation without representation. That might satisfy school children more anxious to get out on the playground rather than sit in a stuffy classroom, but it's not very appealing to an adult mind. Better to read Barbara Tuckman's section in The March of Folly, How the British Lost America, and get at the real reason for the conflict. A centralized government interfering in the lives and curtailing the freedoms of its citizens. The con conflict was between the government of Great Britain and a citizenry that was mostly British. And that government was, by comparison with the remainder of European nations, relatively benign. The most centralized government on the European continent was that of France. France, however, was experiencing an intellectual undercurrent that would lead to the French Revolution. No political philosopher is referenced as often as Montesquieu in The Federalist. But Montesquieu had this to say about the optimal size of republics in the spirit of laws. If a republic be small, it is destroyed by a foreign force. If it be large, it is ruined by internal uh, imperfection. It is, therefore, very probable that mankind would have been at length, obliged to live constantly under the government of a single person, had they not contrived the kind of constitution that has all of the internal advantages of a republican, together with the external force of a monarchical government. I mean a confederate republic. This was the challenge with which this nation's founding fathers wrestled. 
how to create a confederated republic without opening the door to an imperial form of government. So who ought to bear the cost of a confederated government? Neither Federalists nor Anti-Federalists differed on the principle that once a confederated republic had been created, its cost must be borne by the participating members. Differences arose only over the implementation and administration of cost-bearing. There was surprisingly little discussion of the underlying principle of legitimate taxation during the founding period, although Thomas Jefferson had left an imperfect clue in his declaration statement, all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Curiously, it is the principle of equality that ought to underlie any legitimate taxation by government. However, there is nothing in Jefferson's statement to suggest the fallacy of equal outcomes for all humans. To the contrary, all humans are only entitled to rights granted by their creator, so-called natural rights. The first responsibility of government, according to Jefferson, was to protect life. Beyond that, was the responsibility to protect liberty and the pursuit of happiness, both goals to be pursued simultaneously. Within this scope, liberty was clearly defined. One might not aggress against another human. Within that boundary, one ought to be free to pursue happiness as one wished. Jefferson wisely avoided Locke's identification of property as a limited natural right, right preferring the broader concept the pursuit of happiness. The concept of government and the pursuit of happiness enigmatically contradicts each uh, other. Fundamentally, government is coercion, or as observed, men with guns. The transition from pure monarchy to representative government has not changed that. If we value the services of government, and particularly those that are minimal and enumerated, then they must be paid for. If all are to have equal protection of the law and the services of legitimate government, the principle of equality dictates that all individuals fully enjoying the privileges and protection of the government ought to pay equally for its cost. That principle can be minimally moderated to exclude those who simply require the protection of government from those who enjoy both the protection of their rights and accrue privileges from government. We already recognize this distinction by excluding minors and others from voting privileges. Why should the vote, as an example, be extended to those either unable or unwilling to bear the legitimate cost of government? Remember when pondering this challenge, challenging question, that we are describing legitimate constitutional government, the cost of which would only be a small fraction of the cost of today's government. This proposal for a bi-level citizenship no doubt will evoke howls of injustice and what about objections? First, let's recognize that government is a human institution which will always be subject to human limitations. We are wasting our time when we seek utopian solutions. 
The best we can do is to constrain government to its legitimate purposes. Government's powers then must be drastically constrained. The alternative is to live with the current level of oppressive government, or more likely, the kind of tyranny described by George Orwell in 1984. On the other hand, we could start now within the limits of an imperfect constitution to eliminate obviously unconstitutional outlays for current federal government operations such as the Department of Education. The more we are able to bring government down to its constitutional size, the easier it, it becomes for the, uh, the citizenry to oversee and manage it. <clears throat> Let's look at the first flaw, acknowledgement of the general welfare. <clears throat> we need to recognize that the idea of the general welfare is an extreme abstraction, incapable of being defined in a legal document. No constitution should mention this dangerous concept. After all, constitutions are meant to implement government that benefits everybody, not special interests. The alternative is to allow politicians to define public welfare in a way that accumulates the most campaign contributions and votes for the politician. The second flaw, taxation based upon the value of the land. We're all quite glib about the meaning of value, but only economists seem to come, have come to grips with this slippery concept. We are constantly bombarded with ads claiming a product is worth X, and yet by spending Y, we can save X minus Y. Of course, in economic terms, we are spending Y for consumption, thereby denying that amount or any part of it for saving. Adding to that logical flaw is the idea that something has constant value over a period of time. We might say, for example, that the value of a gallon of regular gasoline is $4, based upon the fact that we just filled our car's gas tank and paid that price. But there is no guarantee that the same service station would not charge $4.10 tomorrow, or that next week one might uh, not find a service station willing to sell a gall gallon of regular gasoline at $3.75. Instead of value, we are observing the price that governed a, a certain transaction, which is measurable. Value is something completely subjective and immeasurable. It can only be measured by what one is willing to give up at a given point in time in an exchange between a buyer and a seller. It is difficult to envision how such a fuzzy con uh, concept could be made the basis for calculating taxes, even when the product is land. Even if a tax based upon the so-called value of land were possible, which it isn't, how does that correlate to the government services enjoyed by an individual? If there's any kind of correlation, it is quite remote. Let's look at the third flaw, the collection of the apportioned taxes. This was the apparent major weakness of the government under the Articles of Confederation. Even the anti-federalists acknowledged it and appeared willing to amend the Articles of Confederation to address the limitation. Perhaps the anti-federalists were a little too late to compromise and instead faced a major defeat when the Constitutional Convention convened in Philadelphia in, in 1787. 
That does not explain the magnitude of their defeat, however. Victors write history, and we have consumed that history over virtually the entire life of this nation. Few are willing to explore what is derisively called alternative history, what might have occurred if another course had been pursued. The problem is the prevalence of binary thinking, not only in our current generation, but in the generation that founded this nation. Perhaps the most obvious example was the take-it-or-leave-it dictate that emerged from the Constitutional uh, Convention. Given that the real need for revision of the Articles of Confederation was camouflaged by a number of issues, a number of other issues, some of which were magnified beyond reality or outright bogus, the cost of federal government and taxation question was the major issue to be addressed, and yet only two alternatives seem to have been seriously explored. The first, an immense centralization of power in that government and openings for further significant expansion of federal power, or the second, live with the consequences of a non-amended Articles of Confederation. Furthermore, the states had to make that choice now because the nation was in crisis, according to the Federalists. It's difficult to find any serious discussion of interim measures, such as significant penalties for late payment by the states of those taxes assessed by the United States in Congress assembled. That is not to rule out the adoption of many of the changes that were made in the Constitution. But these changes could have been considered individually in a less stressful atmosphere in which fuller implications of the char changes could be addressed. The argument that the stability of a, a stronger federal government had to be established if foreign governments and foreign commercial interests were to take the emerging United States seriously lacks evidence. The founders recognized the danger of becoming involved in European politics. All that mattered were the commercial interests, of which short-term financial lending was the most important. The Dutch filled the need so adequately that the British abandoned sanctions in favor of competing with the Dutch in investing in the United States. They were soon so successful that the British again became our nation's major investors for a significant period of time. Should the Constitution of 1787 be scrapped in favor of an Article 5 replacement. <clears throat> Article 5 of the Constitution may be amended in any manner that meets the basic requirements of amendment, propo um, amendment proposal and ratification process, with one exception. Voting in the Senate must remain on the basis that every state has equal voting power. Every amendment to date has been proposed by Congress. But a convention of the states may alternatively propose amendments independent of Congress. Opponents of the idea claim that the current Constitution runs the risk of being scrapped as the promoters of the Constitution of 1787 scrapped the Articles of Confederation. Technically, the opponents of a convention of the states are correct. But there are other scenarios, including one that a convention of states would not be able to make a single substantial amendment to the Constitution because of the three-fourths state ratification rule. 
There's little point in arguing who is correct in this case. The vast majority of citizens have such a poor understanding of the Constitution that little good could come from such a convention. For example, some of the proposed amendments are superficial fixes to structural problems such as legislative term limits and balanced budget amendments. The best that could be expected from such amendments is that they would do no serious harm. It would be surprising if one person in 20 could participate in a serious discussion about constitutional issues today, and many would argue that not even one in a hundred is capable. All that can be achieved in calling a, for a convention of the states today is to provide a forum for the sharing of civic ignorance, a veritable bacterial culture dish for demagogues. A far better approach to this challenge is to call for a voluntary national educational effort about the Constitution. We need not be concerned that some instructors will intentionally mislead their students. Truthful, well-delivered civic instruction will drown out the bad instruction. What is important is that we begin the discussion now. Oh, indeed. And that's exactly what uh, we're doing here on We the People, the Constitution Matters, having that discussion about our form of government and what it was that, that the founders gave us. And I, I really appreciate, Phil, your point of the uh, constitutional ignorance that we face in our country that is so widespread that uh, you would barely find a group of people together that could actually deal with the issues such as uh, th that our founders dealt with. Well, looking at the um, the language of the Articles of Confederation, it's interesting to see some of those elements were clearly preserved in our Constitution. Uh, the idea that all expenses incurred for the common defense or general welfare and allowed by the United States and Congress assemble shall be defrayed out of the common treasury, but that those taxes uh, levied by the authority and direction of the legislature of the several states. In other words, the federal government did not collect any taxes from the individual citizens. That was the job of the state legislature. Now, the state legislatures would be sent a bill, essentially, from the federal government saying this is how much your state owed. And, of course, our Constitution made it clear that the way in which th that amount was to be divvied up was not like it was under the Articles of Confederation, as you pointed out, the, uh, rightly so, that it's hard to set a value on property and say that that's an accurate measure because, well, that changes all the time. You know, I just received a thing that tells me that uh, my house is worth X amount of dollars. And that's, uh, let's see, we've owned the house for 30 some years. And that's an enormous increase of what we paid, you know, 30 some years ago. But is that actually a fixed value? Uh, next week, it could go up or it could go down. It, 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 again, it's the, you know, what the market bears, not necessarily a fixed amount. So, indeed, our founders were wise to say, well, that, that uh, property value is not a good way to measure uh, how each state is going to be taxed. Instead, in the Constitution, they chose uh, it to be based upon the proportional number of people in the state. That's why the census is taken every 10 years. Uh, each 10 years, that proportion is determined 
as one state increases in population and another state decreases. I understand California is losing some seats in the House of Representatives as a a result of the last uh, uh, census because their population has shrunk where other states have grown. And all of that is is calculated to say, we're going to not measure it on the land value in the U.S. Constitution. We're just going to measure it as a proportion of the people in your state. You have more people in your state, you pay a higher percentage of the tax rate. And so this idea that the tax bill would never go directly to the citizen was not only in the Articles of Confederation, this was preserved in our Constitution. Let me read to you from Article 1, Section 9. By the way, just a little bit of cue about Article 1, very important. It's the powers of the legislature in, in Section 8. The powers that are listed there are the powers that we have given to Congress to tax and spend. They could tax and spend for the 17 things listed there in Article 1, Section 8. If it's not on the list, they can't tax and spend for it. Of course, they uh, violate that on a daily basis, uh, but that's the law. That's what the Supreme Law of the Land says. And so that's, 8 says, uh, Article 1, Section 8, here's what they can do. Article 1, Section 9 says, here's what they cannot do. These are the things prohibited to Congress. And uh, in Section 9, this clause, no capitation or other direct tax shall be laid unless in proportion to the census or enumeration herein before directed to be taken. Capitation is a term you may not be familiar with, but we all know what decapitation is. That's what the, you know they were doing in the French Revolution there, off with their head kind of thing. So uh, capitation tax is a tax upon the head that is a tax upon the individual citizen, and our Constitution says that's illegal. Federal government cannot issue capitation taxes, direct taxes on the head of the individual. Rather, it says, if there is any direct taxes going to happen at all, it must be by proportion. That is, by proportion according to the population of that state. That's why the census is taken every 10 years. So the state that has a larger proportion has a higher tax bill. Let's uh, talk some numbers just for example. I don't know the exact numbers, but Maryland is around uh, 6, 6 million people. Say, Let's just call it 5 million for argument's sake. And let's say Pennsylvania is 10 million. I know it's probably more than that, but let's just say for argument's sake, if that was the case, then the tax bill the state of Maryland would receive from the federal government would be half that of Pennsylvania because Pennsylvania had twice the population of the state of Maryland. So clearly, the design of our founders was following the the restriction by the Articles of Confederation that the tax bill from the federal government would never go to the individual citizen. It would always go to the state government. Now, it was a longer discussion than we have time for, but many people argue, well, wait a minute, the 16th Amendment changed all that. And I would argue the evidence is that it did not. Not only in the text and the arguments and the discussion that took place in Congress in uh, uh, passing the 16th Amendment and then its ratification by the states and all that, but what was most important that the Supreme Court weighed in on the 16th Amendment just the next year after it was supposedly ratified, and they said no new taxing power, no new taxing power is granted to the federal government by this amendment. Wait a minute, that means if they couldn't do it before the 16th Amendment, they can't do it after the 16th Amendment. If no capitation tax is permissible before the 16th Amendment, the Supreme Court said no capitation tax is permissible after the 16th Amendment. They say, wait a minute, 
because you're scratching your head at this point and say, you know, when I get my paycheck and I take a look at the stub on that paycheck, I see all kinds of federal taxes. There's the federal Social Security. There's the federal income tax. Oh, yeah, there's unemployment. And on and on the list goes of the federal the Medicare. Tons of money taken out of our paychecks right there by the federal government and directly taken out. Directly taken, not through the states, which is how it's supposed to be, that the tax bill is sent to the states and then the state legislature, by whatever legislation they choose to pass, they determine how those funds are going to be raised in their state government. They are the tax collectors, and then they forward that money to the federal treasury. That there is no IRS that legitimately can uh, levy a tax against the citizens of these United States. That's what's constitutional. By the way, please understand me clearly. I am not giving you tax advice. I am not telling you whether to fill out some form or not fill out some form. No, I am just giving you the history and giving you the law of what our Constitution actually says. And in, in essence, the value here in studying the Articles of Confederation is we see that the design of our founders was actually following the same design that was in the Articles of Confederation. The taxes for paying the proportion shall be laid and levied by the authority and direction of the legislatures of the several states within the time agreed upon, upon by the United States in Congress assembled. That's the text of, of uh, Art Article 8 in the Articles of Confederation. So you might wonder, well, that, then what in the world happened? I mean, what happened that we are so far down the road now that you know you don't even see that money the federal government takes it directly out of your paycheck, and you might get a little portion of it back a year and a year and four months later, right? You're not going to see it. For, they get to keep it for at least a whole year, and you don't see it. You can't. You can't have that money. But oh, if you don't pay on time, there's all kinds of fines and penalties, and on and on it goes. That whole corrupt system is a violation of our constitution and was developed. Over time, and particularly the large way in which it was advanced, was World War II. Wars are always occasion, as uh, some infamous uh, uh, element of Obama's administration said, never let a, a crisis go to waste. Take every advantage of it you fully can. And they did. They took advantage of World War II and said, Be, do the patriotic thing. Buy war bonds and pay the income tax. And people willingly paid because it was like, okay, we're in time of war. All this extra money is needed to go fight uh, the Nazi uh, fascist and so forth. All those evil people in Europe, we need to deal with that. Okay. But what happened when the war came to an end? Did the tax end? Oh, no, 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 no. Then they had a new war to say, oh, now we got the Cold War with the USSR. Oh, yeah, that guy that we were buddied up with during the uh, Second World War now becomes our enemy, so now we got to continue. Yeah, that was it. They sold the continuation of the income tax on the oh, endless war, and now we're in uh, war on terror. Now the Cold War's ended. They invented a new one, the war on terror, endless. But, of course, by this time point in time, people have been so thoroughly propagandized that they believe that the income tax is actually constitutional. When you study the history of it, when you look at the actual law and you look at what the Supreme Court even said, you realize that our current system of gathering federal taxes is unconstitutional. Well, how do we recover from this? Uh, not an easy process, but the first step in recovery is to educate the American people on the constitutional means of taxation designed by our founders. And there are ways in which we could restore it. There was a friend of ours who 
has gone on into uh, his heavenly reward now, but uh, uh, he had proposed in the state of Georgia as a member of the state uh, Georgia state legislature a bill that would essentially put the IRS out of business in the state of Georgia by indemnifying every citizen of the state of Georgia who, when they filled out all their tax forms and, and so forth, and they went to write their check for how much they owed to the IRS, they didn't put in the line of to whom the IRS, they put or the Treasury Department, they put the Treasury of the state of Georgia. And so they would send their federal tax bill to the state of Georgia. Georgia would collect all the funds from its citizens and then have a committee to determine, looking at the federal budget, what was actually constitutionally being spent. And we know there's a lot of money. Maybe 90 plus percent of the money spent by the federal government is not constitutional at all uh, in their spending. There are things like the Department of Education, which you mentioned, Phil, but plenty of other programs and plenty of other bureaucracies completely unconstitutional. They would figure out the proportion of the federal budget that was constitutional, and they would send to the federal government from the state of Georgia's treasury, they would send that portion of that, uh, that percentage of that money, which they collected from the people of the state of Georgia. Now it was shot down in Georgia, but I know that there was a couple other other states that also considered a similar thing. Thus far, no state in my knowledge has had it pass either of the House or the Senate. Uh, and so the state legislatures have toyed with this idea in a few states. None, none yet have taken the, the, the bull by the horns. But perhaps 87,000 new IRS agents being trained in tactical firearms with not only semi, but I understand even being trained with fully auto weapons. Wait a minute. IRS agents with full autos? Wait a minute. We're told we can't have such guns, but the IRS is going to have them and 87,000 new IRS Maybe it's time to reconsider that legislation. Maybe it's time to do what Georgia was doing and say, no, we are not open for business here in the state of Georgia for the IRS. But perhaps that's too radical. I think Florida's got a good idea, and I haven't heard whether it's passed, but it was being considered that they were going to license each and every IRS agent. So if they were going to function in the state of Florida, they must meet standards that the state of Florida upholds. And if these IRS agents don't abide by that standard, if they're breaking the laws of the state of Florida, eh, their license gets removed and they are not free to practice in the state of Florida. Florida can then arrest them and so forth. Anyway, that that's another proposal that may not be as radical as our, our friend of Georgia, but might be a good way to rein in the out-of-control taxing uh, powers and bring it back to the constitutional standard. Well, Mike, when we talk about taxes, I know there's an interesting connection between the Second Amendment and taxes, because wasn't the first gun control measure really a, a tax on the fully auto? Is that right? Oh, that's absolutely correct, Pastor Whitney. So to give everybody a quick crash course, the National Firearms Act of 1934 was a knee-jerk reaction to the St. Valentine's Day massacre. And what the federal government decided is, you know, we're going to put together this list of all these super scary items and if you want uh, the privilege to own one of these items, then you have to register the item with the federal government and you have to pay a tax. And what went on this list, fully automatic weapons like you mentioned, short-barreled rifles, short-barreled shotguns, silencers, suppressors. They got a category called any other weapon. They got a category called destructive devices. And I want to make note of the fact that uh, when it comes to fully automatic weapons, in addition to the National Firearms Act of 1934, Thanks to a president in 1986 under what was dubbed the Firearm Owners Protection Act, common peasants like you and I can't own 
fully automatic weapons that were manufactured after May of 1986. Do either of you remember who was president in 1986? Isn't that Reagan? It was Ronald Reagan. It was. I get a lot of people who guess Clinton uh, because not necessarily because their timeline is off, is because the the letter that's next to their name they sort of presume that it's the Democrat who uh, signed that into law. Uh, but when it comes to the National Firearms Act of 1934, they put together the, this list of these items. And if you wanted to own one of these items, you'd have to register them with the federal government and pay a tax. The tax for most of these transfers was $200, which frankly was cost prohibitive for most people at the time. I mean, my dad always tells me that hot dogs cost a nickel in Coney Island when he was growing up. So 200 bucks for the mere privilege of being able to go ahead and purchase one of these items that were primarily toys for most people. It was just simply out of the question. The average family car cost about $550 in 1934. Um, so people often ask me, why did they create this as a tax scheme? And believe it or not, from the research that, that I've gone through, uh, the simple fact was the federal government thought there was no way they had the authority to regulate firearms otherwise. <laughs> they had some kind of semblance of uh, specific enumerated powers back then. It's crazy. But now they just use the Commerce Clause to, to do anything and everything that they wish to do. So that's that. It, there is a little interesting tie uh, when it comes to that. One thing I do want to mention, I looked through some of the legal research on the Articles of Confederation in terms of Article 8. And I noticed one common theme. There are really only about 14 cases that even tangentially touch on it. But the one word that I saw over and over and over again was the word weakness. And that is how every single one of these cases, these opinions described um, the, the taxing system in Article 8 under the Articles of Confederation. And Many of them talk about it as obvious. There's one case that said the paralysis of the Articles of Confederation in terms of uh, taxation need not even be discussed, basically, and it's a foregone conclusion. So the courts have seemingly had some very uh, powerful opinions regarding Article 8 uh, taxing and the Articles of Confederation. There was one more in particular that I want to touch on, and this was a, a case that that was Wyoming versus the EEOC, and it said uh, a major weakness of the system created by the Articles of Confederation was the central government's inability to collect taxes directly. That's the way that they particularly described it. But if you look at all of these cases, they've got similar kinds of language uh, throughout each of them describing this. I thought that I've never seen so many different cases describe something so similarly in really any area. It's fascinating. One of the questions I would have, Mike, are most of those cases, oh, say, post-1940s or, yeah, or are they earlier than that? It's an interesting mix. I get actually, because there are so few of them, I could quickly go through. you got a Supreme Court case that uh, briefly touches on it from 1976. you got a Supreme Court case from 1895. you got a Supreme Court case from 1868. You've got uh, a federal circuit court case from the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, followed by a Supreme Court decision on the same case in 1900, Supreme Court case in 1895, Supreme Court 1796, um, Eastern District of Pennsylvania 75, Supreme Court 1898. So these are some, some older mm -hmm. cases. Yeah. Uh, there's what, uh, actually, the EEOC versus Wyoming 
that I pulled that quote from, that was actually from 1983. So that would be the most recent one. And then fairly recently in the Western District, they talked about it. Uh, and this is just the trial court level, but March 22nd, 2022, Western District of Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. So very yeah. current. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that that, that uh, word that you picked up on, Mike, weakness, um, is really so strongly associated with the Articles of Confederation. And from what I've been able to tell, I, I believe it was used quite often um, by the Federalists in the Federalist Essays. Um, but I'm sure it was used by the uh, the media at the time, and, and that it just it got into the history books uh, very very quickly, and uh, you know every child now going through the educational systems in our our nation learns very quickly that uh, the reason that we had to create a constitution were uh, was the weaknesses of the uh, uh, Articles of Confederation. So this was really a messaging thing, so similar oh. to sort of things we see today. I mean, we could all pick out the buzzwords of certain issues that we hear throughout the media and the administration constantly, right? Right. And, you know, um, talk about messaging. Uh, I think one of the most interesting parts of this was the, the idea of Shays' Rebellion, which was uh, listed as the last straw that broke the camel's back kind of thing. Uh, and this comes right out of the uh, the Federalist era. Um, I mean, this was this was the propaganda that was was uh, circulated. If you get into Shays' Rebellion and look at it very closely, what you have is that the state of Massachusetts had the responsibility for raising certain funds, and it determined it was controlled by the Eastern commercial interests. By the way. It decided that it would come up with a taxing scheme that really hit the Western farmers very, very badly. So, yeah, it was a tax rebellion, but it wasn't an insurrection against the United States. So there there would be no reason for the United States to intervene. And in fact, the whole issue was resolved within the state of, of Massachusetts. Um, I don't believe that any of the major participants uh, – in the Shays Rebellion, um, most of them never faced any kind of penalty from the courts. There were a couple of people who were were sentenced to prison because of, of thievery, but you know, other than that, uh, <clears throat> the Easterners backed off. They resolved it within uh, the, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and if you if you look at that whole Shays Rebellion objectively. What it demonstrates is that the Articles of Confederation was not weak in that sense. It was strong because it operated the way it was intended to operate. <coughs> Excuse me. And it's fascinating to know that Shays was uh, himself in the Continental Army. And he was, I forget his actual rank. I believe he was, he was captain, I believe. Captain, okay. And. And if I understand for himself and some of the other farmers, because the federal government was unable to pay them other than a worthless script called the Continentals, you know, that fiat currency money that was a disaster, because they couldn't pay them in that, they often paid the, the soldiers as well as the officers in land. So if I understood correctly, some of the land that was being uh, foreclosed upon, so to speak, and, and being taken back was land that had been payments for the people who had fought the war for independence. Talk about, you know, 
<laughs> you know, biting the, the hand that feeds you. Uh, these men fought and, and many of them bled and suffered greatly to win independence. They were not paid well because the Continental Congress was unable to pay. And so the payment was in land that oh, the state of Massachusetts was trying to confiscate from that. So uh, yeah, it's a little, little sidelight to that whole, uh, that whole scenario. There, there's an addition to the story, I believe, in, in the uh, Whiskey Rebellion in uh, western Pennsylvania, which is very, very similar. Uh, it really, uh, the taxation that was implemented by basically by Hamilton uh, impacted the, the western Pennsylvania farmers uh, who had uh, taken wheat, I believe it was, um, or some other grain. Which they had an excess of, and they could not bring it to market in the the east uh, in that form. It would rot, and so they turned it into whiskey. And so, you know, that's where the tax hit. And uh, so, after the Constitution um, was adopted, um, after the the new government was formed, uh, then you had the the comparable um, action to Shays' Rebellion. But this time, the feds intervene, and uh, Washington uh, marches out to, I think, probably around uh, the Susquehanna River, says, hey, this is ridiculous. I don't want to be associated with this anymore. Uh, turned over command to Hamilton, who proceeded into uh, uh, Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh area. But basically, if you look at the Whiskey Rebellion, you had the same kind of an outcome as you had with Shays' Rebellion. And very, very few people are convicted. And what happens is that uh, they recognize that, well, this tax is excessive. Maybe we ought to adjust it in some way. <laughs> so it's really not a, it's really not an argument that uh, the, the uh, uh, Articles of Confederation government was weak on that score, at least. It was weak in some other areas. You have to acknowledge those. Right, right. And uh, the, taxing, <clears throat> the taxing issue is always, always huge. I remember... You know, talking about the uh, federal government unable to pay those who fought the war for the in independence. I remember in New Jersey, and I believe also in northeastern Pennsylvania along the Delaware River, there was land given to warriors who had fought the, the war for independence because they had no way to pay them any other, other than that. But the ir irony I remember in uh, my teenage years was those families who had owned that land and farmed that land since the revolution – had that land stolen from them by the federal government, supposedly to put up a dam to dam up the northern waters north of the Delaware Water Gap. I forget what they were going to call the dam and the lake that was going to be formed there. But anyway, they stole the land from these families that had been given that land by the government as payment for fighting the war for independence. You know, 200 years later, federal government back, comes back and steals the land from them uh, and drives them off the land. And then they never build the dam so they never they just they, they create a national park up there in uh, the northeastern corner of uh, Pennsylvania, northwestern corner of New Jersey, on land stolen from those families who had fought for the war, war for independence. Just a, this is an example of when the government gives something, look out, they're going to take it from you uh, because they're greedy. And that, that's one of the sad characteristics we see of government. It is greedy. And that is why we must always find ways to rein in that greed, to rein in that taxing power. I think the states had a better design under our Constitution than they did under the Articles of Confederation. That is, each state would be 
the value of what they had to pay, the proportion of what they had to pay was dependent upon their population, not upon the valuation of the land uh, that, that is when, within their state, which you rightly point out, Phil, that's a pretty flexible, insert, uncertain number to say, well, your land is this valuable and, uh, well, look out, tomorrow it's going to change, go one way or, or the other. It's not a fixed standard at all. You know, I think there's something to to be gained by looking at the the initial words of Article 8, which has to do with defense. And defense is another one of those concepts which is virtually undefinable. We have to rely on common sense uh, to to address this because there, you, you can't create a document that says, well, uh, here's what you can do for defense and no more. But when you look at North America, and I'm going to throw Canada together with the United States, because Canada is such a friendly nation that there are virtually no guards, no border guards uh, on, I believe it's one of the longest uh, unguarded uh, uh, boundaries in the world. Um, If you look at North America as a whole, it is bound by four bodies of water, the Arctic Ocean, You've got the Atlantic, the largest uh, ocean in the world, the Pacific, and the Gulf of Mexico. There is no nation on Earth that comes even close to the defensibility of that landmass, those two nations. So how is it that today um, we have a defense, so-called defense budget, and a lot of people would say it's an offense budget. Uh, We have a defense budget that is larger than the next seven to 11 nations combined. Something's wrong. Indeed, it is. There is something desperately wrong. But uh, we the people, we could change that. Uh, And the thing that is beautiful about this is that our constitution does preserve our ability to control what the federal spending is. uh, again, the, we talked in detail about the 17th Amendment and all of that, but uh, that 17th Amendment, I do not believe, was properly ratified and, and could be undone and could be recognized by the states. That's not proper. We're going to stop electing our senators. Instead, our state legislature is going to be in charge of appointing the senators and instructing them very carefully about what it is they are to do in representing their state. They don't represent the people. They represent the state governments, and that balance of power between the representation of the states in the Senate and the people in the House could help rein in the out-of-control spending. Because clearly, clearly, we've got a we've got worse than a drunken sailor. You know, a drunken sailor spending all the money in his pocket. No, no, no. Our federal government has spent hundreds of billions. No, now it's several trillion or 30 trillion or, I don't know, maybe up to 100 trillion that they have spent that we don't have. We're that deeply in debt because of an out-of-control government that, that spends like a, like there is no tomorrow. If I can, let me read the last paragraph of Section uh, or Article 8 of the Articles of, of uh, Confederation because you can see a flaw in this. And it's not, it's, yes, it's a weakness, but it's a weakness in the language of Article 8 that could have been corrected quite quite easily, I think. It currently says, the taxes for paying that proportion shall be laid 
and levied by the authority and direction of the legislatures of the several states within the time agreed upon by the United States in Congress assembled. Well, of course, all of the criticism is that um, the federal government had no ability to require or compel the states to uh, 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 send in their, their tax uh, apportionment. Well, if you modify this and you say um, the legislature of the several states within the time um, agreed or within the time and the penalties for late payment agreed upon by the United States in Congress uh, assembled, you have an entirely different situation. There you have real – you get a tax bill. If you have early payment, you pay this. Uh, On-time payment, you pay this. Late payment, you pay this. Okay. So if that had been uh, in the language, there was a much, much better chance that the, the individual states would have paid on a timely basis. Now, the people who do not agree do not agree with that argument would claim that, oh, in, unless you have coercion by government, nothing is going to happen. Not true. I mean, where does the law of contract come from? It comes from voluntary recognition by individuals that they could rely on their trust in each other and the mutual benefit that they would enjoy to enter into a contract which they would execute. Now, if you look at the number of cases that reach the courts uh, in terms of contract violations, let us say, that are, are uh, alleged, look at that by comparison with the vast number of contracts that are properly executed. Are you trying to tell me that the only reason those uh, contracts are executed is that we have this large standing army ready to compel us to execute contracts? That's nonsense. Yeah, agreed. And that is. Well, we we face the constitutional ignorance, and I think that's our biggest problem today. That constitutional ignorance and the ignorance of the history of uh, the taxing powers that are, are possessed by the federal government, very limited taxing powers. And that was by design on purpose. But because we've surrendered those limitations, we've got a gargantuan government now that uh, is spending, in, it's out of control spending and basically spending us into debt slavery as, as I see it. Because this generation cannot pay off these, whatever it is, $100 trillion, they say, if you add the uh, uh, commitments of Social Security and Medicaid and Medicare, you're talking more than $150 trillion already committed to be spent uh, into the future. So this is not this is not a debt that can be paid by this generation or the next generation or who knows how many generations down the road. We are progressively moving into debt slavery where we'll be simply paying the interest on an ever-increasing debt forever and ever. And so you have to ask, well, then, if you're going to be a slave, who is your owner? Well, the owner is hidden behind a whole bunch of uh, front organizations. The particular front organization here in the United States is the Federal Reserve, which is not federal, by the way, any more than the company Federal Express is federal. It just has that name. It's not federal. These are foreign banksters. I call them banksters because that's the combination of the word banker and gangster. These foreign banksters, international banksters, 
have robbed our country since 1913 with the creation of the Federal Reserve Act. And they have benefited enormously and they have enriched themselves enormously at the expense of our nation. But I understand in that Federal Reserve Act that Congress could take back control. Congress could grab the reins and take back control and take the Federal Reserve away from those international banksters and return it to we the people. And uh, again, creating fiat currency is a very dangerous game. It's always a disastrous game. But we've got a fiat currency system in place now that is benefiting foreign international banksters and not even Americans. So uh, we've got the worst of all, all combinations on the, on the fiat currency. But the result is that we the people are being impoverished degree by degree by degree. And the direction we're headed is what the World Economic Forum describes, that by 2030, you will own nothing and you will be happy. Hmm. How's that work? <laughs> Yeah, we should look at at uh, each of those terms. You mentioned, uh, Pastor Whitney, that uh, the Federal Reserve is not a part legally of the uh, uh, federal government. But what about the uh, uh, the term reserve? What is it? What is it that is significant about the Federal Reserve system? It is that they have inadequate banking reserves. Mm-hmm. It's all it's all, you know, done on faith in whoever is the the chairman of the uh, Federal Reserve uh, uh, system at any one point in time. And nobody's questioning. It's almost like the emperor, you know, with his gorgeous uh, clothes. (laughs) I think it was Ron Paul was the last uh, congressman who called for an auditing of the Federal Reserve. And they flat out refused. They said, no, you don't get to look at our books. Well, excuse me. This is the organization that's basically in control of our entire economy. They set the interest rate. Uh, they print as much money as they choose to print, et cetera. They're in control, and the Congress can't hold them accountable. The Congress can't even look at their books and see what they're doing. This is outrageous. I mean, basically, we have had a foreign takeover of our government without a shot being fired, foreign takeover by the printing press. Uh, of the Federal Reserve. Yeah, you, you just wonder what people are thinking. Uh, um, there's a marvelous book on this, The Creature from uh, Jekyll Island, mm-hmm. which uh, talks about how the how the system was created. Um, and it's just remarkable. I mean, the, the manipulation that was done by the, the big bankers at the time, um, who supposedly were just they just happened to meet at uh, um, Jekyll Island where they were duck hen- hunting. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> they they were hunting, but not for ducks. They were oh no, we no, the they people. Had, <laughs> they they had bigger game in sight. Yeah. No question about it. But it all comes back to the issue of education, because unless we the people understand these principles, unless we the people understand that the the current taxing system is unconstitutional. The entire structure has been built on a, on a, a tissue of lies that's uh, not the proper understanding of our Constitution at all. Uh, and actually, the Supreme Court itself recognized that in 1916 and 1917, several different court cases that they said there's no new taxing powers by this, that the citizens of this country are not to be directly taxed. Uh, this is only for corporations. This is only for non-resident aliens, what we might say, people holding green cards. But we, the people, need that education, which is why we exist here as a radio show. By the way, if you want to communicate with us, 
Uh, use my email, dwhitney, D-W-H-I-T-N-E-Y, at theamericanview.com, dwhitney at theamericanview.com. Now, we the people exist to communicate the founder's view of law and government. We invite you to join us uh, each Friday morning at 8, and check out our website as well, 1180wfyl.com.